I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. In my 30s, um, somebody said to me, and I've never forgotten this, my only job here is to make sure you're successful. If you're successful, we all are successful. And that was a 180 for me to understand, that's me, that's who I am. And I have taken that to every job, every opportunity, every board I'm on now. Colleen Birdnow-Brown has led a number of large companies with an intentional, collaborative, and positive leadership style. She had a unique childhood and a large, blended family and learned resilience early, which helped her deal with crisis situations during her reigns as CEO. Colleen talks about how the delivery of news has changed the world. She says that since women are relatively new as leaders in companies, we bring fresh perspectives and are not tied to following any traditions which no longer work. She says her experience in the top spots were often like being in a fishbowl. People were watching. What a fascinating leader my guest Colleen Birdnow-Brown has been. Today I have with me Colleen Birdnow-Brown. Colleen, welcome to Leading She. Thank you. It's nice to be here. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to have you here as a guest. Colleen Birdnow-Brown is a seasoned and experienced media executive and board member who served as president and chief executive officer of Fisher Communications, Inc. She served as senior vice president of Belo Corporation, reporting to the chairman. During her career, she was president of the broadcasting division of Lee Enterprises until its successful turnaround and sale. She was president and general manager of various companies at Gannett Company Incorporated, which of course is the mass media holding company and largest U.S. newspaper publisher based on daily circulation. Colleen currently serves on five boards, True Blue, chair of German company Sparks Networks, Port Blakey Companies, Delta Dental of Washington, Big Five Sporting Goods. In the past, she has served on the boards of American Apparel, where she was chairman of the board, uh, and the board of CareerBuilder, Cars.com, and Datasphere Technologies, so a lot of corporate board service. Colleen has founded or invested in several early-stage technology companies. She was honored as Director of the Year by the Pacific Northwest National Association of Corporate Directors, NACD. In addition, she was honored in New York City as a top director by the NACD. Colleen Brown is also a Henry Crown Fellow and member of the Aspen Leadership Institute. She holds a Bachelor of Science from the University of Dubuque and MBA from the University of Colorado. So, Colleen, welcome again. Well, thank you. (laughs) Good. So, wow, uh, what a career. I mean... I thought I did a lot in my career, but you have got me beat. You, you have oh. had really interesting and just uh, a real variety of experiences and board positions. So uh, summarize your career if you can, or uh, highlights. What would you like to say about, about your time? I think it's easiest to understand that I'm a, a CEO that's worked in television, broadcasting, and technology. And I love working on corporate boards, uh, helping others uh, to move forward with really what it amounts to be um, disruption technology and adapting the processes and their um, systems to embrace the new way of doing things through digital um, transition, through um, other technologies like artificial intelligence or blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. And I find great pleasure in seeing uh, women move up the ranks. And as I've probably mentioned before, um, on other recordings, I am passionate about that project of enabling women to step up into the C-suite and into the seat and ultimately onto boards. Mm-hmm. And again, we're seeing progress, but probably not as quickly as most of us would have hoped at this point in our career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've hosted Coco Brown with Athena Alliance and Janice Elig with the Ella Group, as you may know, and um, they are passionate about the same things and uh, are helping women get on the on boards. And the numbers still aren't aren't uh, equal. That's that's for sure. Um, but uh, there's a lot of progress yeah, that have been made. Yeah. They're doing good work, and mine is just really providing a hand up, shining a light on 
um, individuals who are certainly capable. Mm-hmm. I'm not as invested or I'm not as professionally uh, involved as, mm-hmm. say, Coco Brown is. I know Coco mm-hmm. or others, um, but I do care about it. And when I look to my own organizations, try to understand you know, how we are helping women move through, move up the ranks and eventually succeed. Yeah. Really great, really great work. Um, you have uh, you've had some really interesting high level executive positions with well, with Fisher Communications. You chaired the board of American Apparel at Fisher. Uh, I'd like to start there. You were CEO two thousand five to two thousand thirteen. You guided the company toward growth, a tremendous growth, uh, and through a tumultuous proxy fight before selling it. Uh, having sold it to Sinclair Broadcasting in 2013. So there must be some stories there. Just I'd, I'd just love to hear about that experience, what you think the listeners might be interested in. Well, you know, it's one thing to get to work in your field and a field that you love. So to be asked to run this company was such a, a pleasure and such an honor, to be honest. Um, I didn't know until... I took the job that I was the first female CEO, but I guess if you think about it, of course I was, uh, because there were so few CEOs that were women at that time. Uh, But it did dawn on me. I was just thankful they chose me and really happy for the challenge. Um, And then, you know, setting down and and identifying what worked at the company, what didn't work at the company. Um, I remember I met with over 100 uh, people in leadership or leadership positions within the company. Uh, and they're spread out. This is a West Coast company and mm-hmm. asking, you know, what do you like about the company? You know, what don't you like about the company? Uh, or my favorite, who do you most respect at the company and why? Which always told me more about who they didn't list than who they were listing. Yeah. And then last, uh, what are you afraid I'm going to do now that I'm the CEO? Ooh, what are you afraid I'm going to do? That's bold. And well, it really, you know, I've now spent an hour with them. So it's not like I jump right on that question right. in the first five minutes. Right. I hopefully build some trust and mm-hmm. try to get at what they're thinking. They've been there longer than I have, obviously. Um, they have more sense of um, the company than I have. And I wanted to gather as much information as I could. And I think that was the recipe for the success we had at Fisher. Uh, you know, identifying the right team in the C-suite, identifying the right leadership um, throughout the, the company, and identifying um, and reinforcing the culture that was there, but also, you know, where we wanted to take it. Right. And, uh, you know, that helped turn it around and that helped identify what we're going to be when we grow up, if you will. Yeah. Uh, remember, it's a hundred-year-old company, so yeah. it had... Yeah. Uh, flour milling assets that were not necessarily intuitive to broadcasting <laughs> assets. So there's some work to be done in sorting all of that out. Yeah, I mean, you were there for a while. Um, and and tell me about the the proxy fight. I mean, what uh, what did you learn during that time? What, what was that like uh, since you were there at that time? Well, previous to my uh, getting that position, I learned that Mario Gabelli had uh, announced that uh, Fisher would be the next broadcaster to be sold. I didn't know that when I took the job. Uh, He had announced that, as I'm told, at the Allen & Company media, um, the executive media retreat that takes place in Idaho. Okay. Um, Again, I didn't know any of that. Uh, I take the job, and I probably should have, but it was a little early in the days of being, you know, monitoring – the technology to hear everything that's happening at the moment. But anyway, uh, as I learned from him, he was um, anxious for us to sell. And I asked for him to give me, he was our uh, one of our major investors. We had several major investors, but he was one of ours. Um, and he, he runs Gamco. And I today very much respect him. I learned a lot from him. Mm-hmm. I learned um, in general about investors and patients. <laughs> yeah. But I also learned about the importance of communicating with them. I learned the importance of knowing your uh, bylaws and knowing backwards and forwards of what your company can and can't do based on their articles of incorporation. Mm-hmm. I learned about the law and the rules of proxy contests. And I became more of a governance expert than I ever understood I would be which has served me extremely well as I moved into other situations. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it taught me that, you know, there, there was a lot of resilience in dealing with adversity and dealing with complexity and, and dealing with 
difficulties. Because remember, during the middle of this, we, we had the uh, internet meltdown, yes, if you that's will. Right. Yep. And we had, you know, the, the whole economic meltdown, which affected um, our top line dramatically, as it did every broadcasters in the country. Yep. Uh, and in fact, it affected ours the, the least out of all of our competitors, which I was proud of. But it was hard to navigate through through that. Mm-hmm. But I learned a lot about myself, as well as the people that surrounded me, and how much I appreciate a good team being part of a good team. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, any, um, you were the top woman, first woman, any gender bias experiences, stories you'd like to relate? <laughs> I probably did that to rest <laughs> during my interview. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was pouring myself coffee and, and I dropped the coffee pot. <laughs> ah. Needless to say, coffee everywhere. And, you know, I was able to make fun of it. I was able to humanize it, right? and it kind of changed the tone of the meeting and the interview, and, you know, at that point, I figure, I'm not going to get this job anyway. Yeah, they hired you anyway. (laughs) Well, they didn't ask you to, yeah, they didn't ask you to get the coffee for everybody, right? You were just getting your own coffee. Let me make sure I clarify that. Correct, correct. (laughs) I was just getting my own coffee, and it was a klutz, and, you know, I owned it, and they thought that was funny. Oh, that's good. Well, they they hired you, so that's that's a good part. Well, that's kind of a lighthearted comment on, you know, a very challenging subject. There are so many things that women run into, uh, especially as you navigate up the chain Mm -hmm. on up the, uh, uh, you know, different levels in a corporation. You know, Bilo was a Fortune 1000 company and Gannett was a Fortune 500 company. So we had structure and process and, you know, all the things you'd expect. And, you know, it's no different today. I think the women are still facing some of those same hurdles. Um, Some I faced, some I didn't, but you know, it's it's a pretty fine line, tightrope that you walk mm-hmm. to make it to the C-suite. Yeah, sure. There are plenty of challenges to getting there. And um, I mean, I, you have to believe you've got plenty of stories there. Um, let's talk about American Apparel. Uh, the research I did there, y- y- there were some really cha- challenging things that went on uh, from the founder. It looked like there was some criminal activity, some safety issues with the workers. Um, so you kind of came into, you called it a, a storm during one of your, your talks, which is what I was saying to myself about this. Um, but but boy, what um, can you give us kind of a summary of, of what what was going on there when you came in and, um, y- you know, what you learned? Yeah. Oh, so much. You learned so much. Uh, my heart went out to the people who worked there. We had almost 10,000 employees on site mm-hmm. and it really or between our other facilities within the Southern California region. And when I was asked to do this is recognizing I was sort of. I think Switzerland, I was supposed to be the director that was voted on by not only the hedge fund that was investing, but also the the part of the board that was remaining. And then I was elected chair. Um, and so we had three, if I recall correctly, three of the old board, three of the new board, and then I was elected chair and I was new. And the whole purpose of this was to get our arms around the company and identify if there's a way forward for the company. And through that process, uh, you know, I went about it the way I knew how, life in a fishbowl as a CEO, right? So everything you did had to be as buttoned up and as transparent mm-hmm. as you could be, because that is the way I was trained coming out of television. Sure. Um, there's no secrets, right? Everybody knows everything. But it was unique to go into an American apparel situation and try to first identify what the challenges were, which uh, very high debt. Um, a lot of debt, um, very little inventory, which comes in the form of fashion mm-hmm. and or fabric and or, you know, uh, fasteners and buttons. And so all of these things we had to sort out quickly. And oh, by the way, I'm not in retail and I'm not manufacturing. So first order of the job was to, to identify somebody to run this place while the CEO was under review. And then the second thing was we had no um, general counsel. We had no um, permanent or full-time controller or CFO. Um, We were missing other key 
um, positions within the C-suite. And so very quickly, we had to assemble a team that would work together and still be able to move the company forward. Mm -hmm. And so I went on the ground there for about 18 months, just doing things that needed to be done for the board. And um, as a result, uh, got processes in place, got, uh, you know, an idea of what we were facing and, you know, worked with the management team to put a strategic plan together. Um, And really, they did the work. I oversaw it submitted it to the board, tried to keep things moving. And ultimately, um, there was a riot that went on, um, led by the former CEO. That was both scary and, you know, the the dark gallows humor you get when you come out of a newsroom (laughs) in television was um, kind of fun, too, because we watched some of the buyers running across the parking lot, literally uh, being chased by <laughs> the rioters and we're like run oh faster gosh. run faster i know we we're standing up there watching from the windows of the warehouse and so you know we found our moments of humor including you know the fear of uh elevators there was this one elevator that you thought if two people got in it it might not make it <laughs> to the yeah to the the, the um executive suite or floor, which just is a warehouse. It's not fancy, but um, there were real moments. I got into the freight elevator as we were going to have a big meeting and I speak Spanish and I speak English, but I didn't speak what they were speaking. And I'm not a tall person, but they were half my size. Mm. So these, these folks were hardworking, sewing all of these garments. I didn't know their language. And I realized I stuck out like a sore thumb. So how was I going to, you know, in any way, you know, give them reassurance (laughs) that we're trying to get this thing under control, that we're trying to, you know, avoid bankruptcy, um, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, so many stories, yeah, so many good stories, so many sad stories, but it was quite, it was quite the time in American apparel. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just seems like... um... It was the Wild West, and I learned that at one <laughs> yeah. time, you know, there was there were a lot of bricks and mortar stores, but then it became an online company, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, you know, part of the realization that the debt was too much for the company to bear. Yeah. They couldn't even pay the interest payment. Yeah. And when you do this kind of work, you know, you look for how you can save the company. You look for how you can create a plan that sees its way through the bank, the shareholders. Um, management, you know, how can we create a viable company? And ultimately, there, there was just no plan, no mm-hmm. feasible plan to, mm-hmm. to get this company through. So we did reorganize, repackage it. Chapter 11, first experience for me, that was all yeah, new to me. Saw that. Um, but yeah, and then it, it um, uh, was sold through that process. And I was finished with the company at that time. Um, and it, it handed over to ultimately Gilded Sports Auto mm-hmm. Canada. Yeah. Yeah. You were the first uh, female on the board. I understand it. You said you would join the board, but you must promise me that you will uh, put two more women on the board at least. Right. Which really worked, it sounds like, because at one time there was an all female board there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It really was quite a board and we got a lot done um, for everybody to trust each other and put aside their worries I even know the CEO that we brought in, Paula Schneider, was fabulous. And, you know, I'm sure she was wondering what the heck, you know, my role was because she hadn't necessarily worked with a chairman of the board before. And I assured her I did not want her job (laughs) and I would not interfere with her job because I wasn't about to be able to produce a clothing line. I can guarantee you that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I needed her to trust me and she needed to trust me. And we ended up being great friends, and mm. uh, I respect her so much today. And she's actually uh, chair of uh, CEO of Susan G. Uh, G. Komen worldwide. Oh, wow! And, yeah, she's gone on to do some really cool stuff, and she is a survivor of breast cancer. And mm. I admired her so much for that, and her poise and grace through mm-hmm. all of this was mm-hmm. amazing. And she had a fashion background, I understand. Totally. Yeah, yeah. she yeah. was perfect for this job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been in media much of your career. Um, You and I discovered that we are very, very close to the same age, just one day apart, which is really, just really (laughs) blows me away. One day apart, uh, actual birth date. So we have lived long enough to know that uh, news delivery to the public has changed quite a bit in our lifetimes. 
Um, and at one time, it was newspapers, then it became radio, then it was the 6 p.m. evening news, and now digital is the record of the day. Um, there is just sheer immediacy of information, and much of it has not been verified. We don't always know what's true. So talk about the delivery of news and how it's changed and how that's impacted you know, our world today. Well, it's interesting that you bring up newspapers. Uh, I guess that was uh, before or after the Pony Express. But yes. newspapers were set up um, it, really with individual owners who wanted power and control and influence in their communities. And they would even endorse candidates, and they still do that too today. They endorse candidates. So um, the means of newspaper was never completely pure. Uh, as we kind of look back on it, you know, in nostalgic ways and think it was, it was not. It was definitely a reason newspapers created what was known as yellow journalism mm -hmm. and a lot of other power uh, initiatives that today we would cringe at if we really knew. And there are many stories about that. But of course, radio came along fabulous and, it, you know, just knit together this country like nothing you've ever seen, where they actually began the gathering around the yep. radio to hear the story mm -hmm. in the evenings. And then, of course, television came along. And I, I am embarrassed to say I was in a top 20 market in my first job. And at six in the morning, you're going to laugh at this. You, and we were an ABC affiliate. We ran the Lone Ranger. At 6 a.m.? The rerun of The Lone Ranger at 6 a.m. <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> Who's watching that at 6 a.m.? Well, the reality is 6 a.m., 6 a.m. But the reality of that was just a year down the road, television began to change. And mm -hmm. you started to see um, everybody figure out that news was where you could sell cars. Mm -hmm. And news could sell about anything. So create new more news inventory. So expand your news windows. So expand your news shows. So expand anywhere you can with news. And once that sort of, you know, stretch to what 4 a.m. now i think big markets run 4 a.m newscasts um running up until whatever seven o'clock show you've got usually good morning mm -hmm. america today's show or cbs this morning and then of course what happened in the evenings you've got the four o'clock news and then I, I can keep going it just expanded beyond mm -hmm. what anyone ever thought it would uh, then of course um you expand not only the three or four television networks but you expand with um the UHF frequency, which oh, yeah. added three or four television, uh, additional television stations to the market. And then a few of them start producing news, and there's certainly more local content, uh, which added more uh, competition for the advertising dollar. And then, of course, what happens next, um, you see digital come in and actually went to high definition first, but you could run more than one television station on your signal, if you will. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, satellite came um and cable came i guess cable came first in the 40s and 50s and then satellite came in i always remember the story i was uh i was a program director at uh, kusa in denver and i got a call this is in the 80s i got a call from somewhere in the bahamas asking us to do more local weather and as i mentioned to you we were doing so much with more additional news like how much more local weather you go on and then i realized he's talking with that Jamaican kind of mm -hmm. cadence and accent. And it's like, where are you? <laughs> and that was the first time it really dawned on me that our signal was being seen in Mexico City and mm. in the Bahamas. And, and they're playing our contests. And our role just exploded, if mm -hmm. you will, as television stations and our signals being taken, which led to, by the way, us charging. You can't just take our content for free, but mm -hmm. our charging. Mm -hmm. um, uh, satellite and cable for carrying our, our signals. And then, of course, uh, digital came on board. And yeah. with digital and the disruption, we weren't set to compete. You didn't have the ability to compete when we were on Spectrum and uh, they were on, you know, a digital format. So now mm -hmm. with 5G, where the television uh, companies are all going today, uh, we will be able to compete slightly different way, but we should be able to compete uh, with the in internet or digital. Now, obviously, we're ruled by the FCC, and mm -hmm. most of the digital is not ruled by uh, the government. Yeah. Government in any way. So all of that came around to more television, more news, uh, 
cable became editorial news, and then the immediacy created less fact-based yeah. news. It used to be we had to, you know, we followed the AP style of news, Associated Press, and we were required to get two sources. Now you get around that by saying reporting in progress or this just in, but we haven't verified it. Haven't verified and it. That's, right. that's news, right? Right. News. And now we have editorialized yeah. people call news and it's just editorial. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think journalists delivering th- the news. Yeah, I think, you know, Emily Barr with Graham Media. Oh, yeah. She just retired. Yeah. Um, she said something to me that I haven't forgotten in, in my podcast interview with her and that is it's not really media it's not really social media Uh, media suggests that there is some verification of the truth or double checking it's a platform for people to say whatever the heck they want to say it's it's not media Um, now you might have you know whatever network that has their their twitter and you'd like to think that they've checked their facts but it's just a big you know again wild west you know just a big platform of uh just all kinds of editorial comments about things yeah yeah and emily's right um you know the most important thing is quote your source because mm-hmm. if you're quoting harvard business review or the new york times or you know your local newspaper you want to believe that they've done their homework and checked, mm-hmm. done their fact checking. And they're verified that Tegna has out there. There are other services that are checking the facts and trying to remind you the facts are being checked. But even then, even then, some of the best news organizations get it wrong. Yeah, they do. We've seen it. You have an interesting background. Uh, I think I have all of this right. Correct me if I, if I don't. Uh, born, you were born in California. You came from a large blended family. Your mother died when you were only four years old. Uh, There were five children in your family. Your father remarried to a woman who also had five children. Your stepmom is Hispanic, so there was a blend of cultures in your upbringing. Uh, You call yourself a military brat, so there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we can start wherever you want, but uh, a very unique background. and so I'm sure you've got some great stories. Just talk about your childhood and how, how did this childhood, why, why do you, how do you think your childhood affected, you know, who you are today? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, I didn't think about this much uh, in just the last few years. It's been brought up as that's unusual when I share my background or my story. Uh, I think in the past you just didn't take the time to self-reflect. But in my case... Uh, It's hard to explain to someone that I grew up rural, um, and when we we moved from California, Dad had to get out of the military because of um, my mom passing away, Mm. and and we moved to this farmhouse not far from my grandparents, but there was no indoor plumbing. Oh, yeah. So, as this little four-year-old, I'm trying to convince myself to take myself out to the outhouse with those big scary plants and oh, big man. scary animals in the field and, and you know fences and not to mention I thought I'd fall in yeah because and the sidewalk was not really sidewalk it's something different that was really bumpy and you know mm-hmm. broken apart and anyway if I didn't come back without two skin knees and being freaked out it wasn't a normal trip to the bathroom so (laughs) that's what people don't realize about my upbringing right kind of just made it work you know and I think that set the tone for my life um not to get too afraid or too resistant to taking on a challenge because it generally always works out and Mm -hmm. you can handle a lot and a lot of my life has been compared to you know what's the worst that can happen no. Right. I lost I mean, my mom when I was a four. It's yeah. already happened to me. So. Right. I mean, that just teaches you resilience, you know, at a very, very young age, unfortunately, and just, uh, you know, blending the families, you know, uh, you know, there's just a lot, a lot there. So I can see how you were prepared, you know, for the these challenging positions you had. Well, and, there, you know, we make it out like it was all... Um, I don't know, conflict or, you know, with friction. And it wasn't. There was a lot of good, a Mm. lot of good, um, you know, crazy memories that defined, you know, my childhood. 
first time eating mole. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Mole's good stuff. The family, oh my gosh, the family reunions, the food was so great. I love that. Um, you know, learning someone else's culture. Um, we They were Catholic, we were not. So, you know, being jealous when the Catholic Church allowed them to wear jeans to church. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and we didn't get to. <laughs> we still had to dress up because yeah. we were good Presbyterians. Uh, very interesting. So yeah. there are a lot of good, a lot of good memories. Sounds fascinating. Um, just very unique background. So, in in um, one of your talks uh, that I that I listened to, you said your your leadership style has changed over the years. You know, how has your leadership style changed? You know, maybe when you were at Gannett or Fisher and, and where it was in American Apparel. I mean, how, what have you learned that you, if you had to do it over, you'd do it this way? What, uh, how has it changed? You know, it has changed over the years. And when I came out of graduate school and coming from a family of 10, I, I would argue I was pretty competitive mm -hmm. and a little bit of, you know, to each their own and, and understanding that, well, I didn't know it was bad to be ambitious. I didn't know that it was even bad to be assertive. Mm -hmm. um, others would not think those are likable traits in a woman or That's a, right. a female. And it didn't. I didn't understand that. It took me a good decade to figure out that. And I should have learned quicker. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> I have a hard head. Um, it, it took me some time to yeah. figure out that, number one, I was doing those things because of how I was raised, right? Yep. And maybe a little bit of who I was. But number two, I didn't that was the environment I was in. It wasn't who I was. And so along the way in my 30s, um, somebody said to me, and I've never forgotten this, my only job here is to make sure you're successful. Hmm. If you're successful, we all are successful. And that was a 180 for me, a complete 180 to understand that's me, that's who I am. And I have taken that to every job, every opportunity, every board I'm on now mm -hmm. is how do we help the CEO be successful? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. if the CEO is successful, we're all successful. And life is too short to be, you know, I don't know, strategizing and trying to knock people off before they get to the top and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe... I should have hung in there a little longer on some of those um, opportunities, but there, at some point you don't want to be there. You know, you want to be somewhere where you can be who you are. And I can honestly say at Fisher, that was the best job I ever had. Mm. It was so much fun because my only job was to help everybody be successful. Yeah. And yeah. that was fun. Yeah. And it's, um, I don't want to say it's a feminine, uh, approach or woman approach versus men but it is more much more collaborative uh that approach to play like a team hey we're all in this together you succeed i succeed kind of thing rather than you know dog eat dog kind of like everybody's competing with each other and it is not a healthy environment to be in that and i've been in that too yeah and i know there are women who might say oh you shouldn't have had to change and i know that i would give them the answer back I honestly felt more comfortable and more happy with myself when I was deciding to be positive and not negative or, or political mm -hmm. or, you know, navigating negatively. Mm -hmm. I did not like that. And I see a lot of that, in, especially as the seats, the further up the chain you go, yeah. are fewer. Um, I remember even somebody I brought into this business, um, in a meeting, taking an opportunity to, to throw me under the bus. Mm. And it's like, whoa, what happened in there? Mm -hmm. And to this day, I feel like he was a traitor. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I did everything to help him. And mm -hmm. yeah, well, clearly that's not how he thinks. Anyway, he went on to run a company and he's, he's been very successful and good for him, but mm -hmm. it's not who I wanted to be. Right. And, you know, um, you have to set boundaries there. You have to speak up about that. I mean, there's sabotage. You know, there's there are people that you think are looking out for you. You're on on your team, but but they aren't. You know, um, it's it's very difficult to navigate it. And 
I, you know, there's certain things that help women. I remember a Harvard Business Review survey that um, was recent. It's probably in the last 18 months, two years. It talked about uh, the things that if you just stop and listen, you'll see that women contribute in a different way. And that is women generally, and this is the study that HBR did, of resilience. Mm. They've learned to bounce back in ways differently um, than men. Mm-hmm. They tend to be results driven with that attitude of, you know what, I'm going to work hard, get results, and that should be enough. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we know that's not true. Uh, we tend to be more aware and more motivational to those around us. Um, mm-hmm. We tend to be the ones who are brought in because of um, a need for a completely different look, a yeah. different way of doing things. Sometimes that's that's code for crisis. <laughs> but it, it, when it needs bold, different leadership, you're going to see more women. Yes. I mean, you, you were a living example of that. I mean, you came in when it was really tough there at American Apparel. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we are the whistleblowers. We are not the head nodders. We are not the ones who say, hey, yeah, okay, whatever you guys want to do, you know. And it's not easy to do that, to stand out and, and speak up. Um, but that's that's often what, what we do, don't you think? Well, and I think women, yeah, I think you're right, Susan. And women in general, perhaps because we do look at it differently, but um, I've seen, I've paid a lot of attention over the last 40 years. I've seen women come up with novel strategies that wouldn't have necessarily been on the table. Mm-hmm. And I think it's partly because we're a little bit less aware of the traditions, right? Yeah. Of how things are supposed to be or how they were done because yeah. we weren't in yeah. the room. So right. We didn't know. We weren't. It's like, hey, yeah. guys, yeah. what about I, this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and maybe we care a little bit less about that tradition because yeah. we were never part of it in the first place. Yeah. So I think it does add something to the room mm-hmm. to have that fresh perspective. Yeah. Um, anyway, that, those are my thoughts on yeah, why. Yeah. Um, my background might have succeeded through time. You have a background in reputation kind of management, as I understand it. And um, I had a question for you here. You talk about the turnaround plan. And, and I'll quote you. It says, uh, I found in an article that, that you wrote, this is another red flag. Board members and senior management notice a marketplace reputational threat, and they spring into action with marching orders to just get it fixed. The danger is not knowing the root cause of the problem. They issue orders to put out a fire not knowing where that fire started, why or when it may break out again. So you've specialized in reputation management. It's very, very different um, if we're trying to get ahead of a newspaper coming out or evening news. But if something goes on Twitter, I mean, it's got it's got to be immediate that you kind of, you know, get the fire extinguisher out, right? What would you say about this reputation management and how boards have approached it in the past? And what would you, what, what is your approach? Well, you know, first of all, boards don't usually have a proactive policy. They haven't discussed it. Yeah. And so as a result, you, you get a reaction going on. Uh, if you actually discuss it in the boardroom, discuss it in the C-suite, uh, when things like this come up, whatever the issue is, you've got kind of a playbook. You've got what's allowed, what's not allowed. You've got um, guardrails to make comments in that don't trip you over a ledge you can't recover from. And I've seen this time and time again. And by the way, media is no different than reputation management. I mean, this is what we do all the time, right? Mm-hmm. In media, we can't make a mistake on the air. We can't come out and have some reporting that somebody has died when they've not died and our right. credibility takes a hit, right? So, sure. so much immediate is about reputation management and what you stand for and that you live in a glass fishbowl. That's literally how I think of things. And so as a result, think before you act. My grandmother used to tell me, <laughs> Colleen, never do anything you don't want to read about above the fold in the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Above the fold, below the fold, it's okay. Yeah, you know, I didn't even know what all that meant. I know. I do. Yeah, I do. And, you know, the point is that she wants me to be proud of everything I've done. She wants me to be intentional about what I do, not just do it, but think it through. So almost every scenario can be pre-planned 
and fall into a reputational process. Mm. And so when you see the Twitter and off the handle uh, comments by executives, um, you know, there is a way around that. There is a way to make it constructive and thoughtful and beneficial to your company. Mm hmm. Yeah, Elon Musk might need that that little lesson. <laughs> of course, if he owns the but company, then they have to want to do it. So <laughs> they have to, they have, which is you know <laughs> part of his issue. <laughs> part of it. Yeah. Um, there's a quote I, I love from Arianna Huffington, founder and CEO of Thrive. Of course, she's got a Huffington Post and all. Uh, she says people who succeed should talk about their failures more. As my mother told me, failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to success. So what failures have you had that you care to talk about that you feel like you've learned from? Oh, there's so many. But when you have a personality like mine, I think many do. Yeah. You, you don't sit there and go, oh, I failed. Beat yourself up. It's like you just pick yourself back up and keep going. So you learn from it, but you don't sit there and go, I'm counting all my failures over here on the left side of the ledger. Now I balance it with the things I've succeeded on the right side. Honestly, I forget that I failed. I just take the learnings and realize I'm smarter today and don't focus on failure. But if you require me to have a failure, uh, I, I can come up with many, but I never think of them as failures. You know, whether or not it, it is um, offering the wrong salary to the wrong anchor, mm. uh, whether or not it is paying too much for an asset, uh, which, you know, definitely I would say I've done. I won't say which one. And definitely I would argue that interpersonal, I've made plenty of mistakes that I wish I could take that right back out of my mouth and forget <laughs> I said that. But all you can do is, you know, do better the next time. Right. <clears throat> so, so many failures, so many failures. But each time, don't beat yourself up. Yeah, the way that is so easy for women to do. Oh, I can yeah. guarantee you, yeah, the men just don't focus on that. And I think I've bent a little bit more toward that behavior mm -hmm. because when you're doing what we do, it adds up quickly and it becomes too heavy to carry around. So I try yeah. not to think about it. I try to learn from it, move on and do better the next time. Yeah, I've had to work at that because I think I grew up in the same kind of family you did where... If you said if you felt something, believe something, you said it without really thinking about, you know, the assertiveness, the like, I'm ambitious, I'm assertive. And when you go out into the world, you realize that people don't look at you like your family did, where it's like, okay, it's okay to be ambitious, it's okay to be assertive. It's not always that way, you know, and so you have to change. And I, in one of your talks, uh, you admitted to having a bit of a temper at times. I've, I've had I've had I have that and uh, and and when I was young, you know, I did that. I said things, did things, and I wish I had take them back. But it is not productive, really, to to live in regret. You know, we learn, we move on, we apologize. You know, that's that's the growth to me. Well, my husband, who's so smart, said to me, um, his definition of anger is when somebody does something you don't want them to. <laughs> <laughs> Like, Pretty elementary from I, your husband. <laughs> wasn't that right? It's true. And so every uh huh, every yeah. time I find myself getting angry, I go, "What? What is? What are they doing that's making me angry?" And it really stopped me in my tracks to put it all in perspective. I can't mm -hmm. control how they behave. I can't right. control what they say. So why do I let that cause my blood pressure to raise? So yeah. I try really hard to limit my level of frustration and mm -hmm. anger when it comes to politics or family yep, or, right, <laughs> you know? right so you know it just I, it just isn't healthy to to yeah. have that kind of mm -hmm. uh, anger that builds up and and you get yeah. so frustrated you can't you know get anything done that doesn't well, work so yeah we don't live in caves we're meant to be around people and friends and family but you know hey i've mellowed out you you, you know we're the same age we we you probably have mellowed out too we realize that there are consequences to well, what we yeah, say well yeah i mean covid yeah, COVID yes. has really taught us all how yeah. important it is to be around people and appreciate them more. Yes, and I right. think I may have mentioned this to you when we first spoke about my management philosophy does not fit into the hierarchical management philosophy. And it never has. I'm not comfortable with that. And I've talked about this for years. And I had the chance to go through the Center for Creative Leadership uh, in my 30s. And they asked us to come one day. 
um, to the training and bring a symbol of your leadership style. Hmm. And of course, m- my son was into Playmobiles and I had almost forgotten and running out the door and literally right on the floor was a wheel. And it was like a light bulb went on. This is exactly the way I think of things. So I took the wheel, explained at Center for Creative Leadership that this wagon wheel from a Playmobil set mm-hmm. that my five-year-old played with is exactly how I think of leadership. I think I'm in this little middle and I'm really protected from hit. I'm not out there selling. I'm not out there gathering news. I'm not out there, you know, plugging the electricity in and, you know, making sure I don't get electrified. I'm in the middle, right? And everything turns around the center and we're so protected. We have to work really hard to understand what's going on out there. Mm -hmm. So those spokes are the communication. And then of course I get into, it gets fancier where you can talk about all the wheels have to align and inertia, how hard it is to get moving and the faster it gets moving, the easier it gets going, you need less energy. Mm -hmm. So that's my management style. And that's Mm -hmm. how I think of people Mm -hmm. is the 360. Who's in your circle of influence? How can you make a difference? You Mm -hmm. can't make a difference outside of those people who trust you and know you yeah in general not in management anyway Mm -hmm. yeah good stuff a couple more questions as we close out um i think you and i share a lot of things in common but this one in particular i heard you on something and and this is me saying this when i get goosebumps it means something to me and you said you got goosebumps you were you were moved by something What, what do goosebumps mean to you Oh, there's so many things. Mostly, it mostly it means I've never thought of it that way. It's like the light bulb has gone on. Yeah. And it's an energy that transforms my brain. Yeah. When something like that happens, I can't even explain how it makes me feel. And mm-hmm. to get goosebumps, besides from being cold. To get goosebumps because of an idea or because of a thought process mm-hmm. that's different than your own, an aha moment yeah. is, is what you live for. God, you're speaking my language here. I mean, I get, I'm getting them right now. I mean, <laughs> I get them all the time in this podcast. Like, we're on to something here. She said something that just resonated with me. And I just know that I'm on the right track. I'm, there's something moving. I mean, your whole body, you know, and, and it's a, you know, mind body connection thing. So they're, they're instructive, right? They are yes, to me. And, you know, it's, it's back to living intentionally and thinking about what it means to you when you do get goosebumps mm-hmm. or when the hair on the back of your head stands up. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's that. It's a sign, you know. It is a sign. And it's understanding sign. what it means matters. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have two children, uh, a daughter and a son, both very successful in their own right. I understand your son uh, is quite a successful author, Pierce Brown. Talk about him. Yeah. Pierce has um, hit a, a, a few home runs here. Um, yeah. yeah, he is... He came out of, okay, let's back up. All his life, we knew he was smart. We knew he was glib. We knew he was mischievous. And we knew he was an athlete. He played every sport known to man. He was good at him. He played for Team Texas in several sports. He played football at the highest levels in Texas. He, you know, mm. he, just, he really just blessed us uh, as parents needing something to do. We always had a game to go to. Yeah. But he got into college and it's like he took a left turn and became a brainiac and all of a sudden he comes out of school, graduates college and says, I'm going to write a book. And he had, he had worked on and off through school, but uh, he negotiated with his dad that he was going to write a book. And his dad said, fine, if you prove to us, you're working eight hours a day, five days a week, and you're writing that book in that whole time, then yes, you can stay here rent free. And that's what he did. He literally, you know, he'd be sitting there, I'd go visit him once in a while because I was working at the time. He'd have his hood up. He would be in a sweatshirt. He would have earbuds in and he's hunched over a computer three months. And he wrote his a book called Red Rising. Mm-hmm. And it became a New York Times bestselling uh, yeah. book. 
and then went on to be published in, I've lost track, but 30 plus countries in different languages. Mm. And then the trilogy was completed. So there's three New York Times bestselling uh, books, uh, all in multiple languages. And then the second trilogy, the first trilogy is um, a lot about, there, there's such wisdom and insight. And if you read his work, you go, where did kid at 23 learn to write like this or mm. think like this, let alone write like this. Every sentence is jam-packed with thoughtfulness. That mm. blew my mind, number one. And then number two, after the first series is done, the second tr- trilogy is about learning to live with the decisions you make. Mm. Yeah. And it's very subtly historic, and he will tell you, a lot of people don't realize this, he wrote all of this on the back of reading Antigone for the third time. And the rest was history. He Antigone? That in, Antigone, the, the historic work. Uh, okay. Very, very um, compelling. And if you are a student of history, there's a lot of tells in there mm-hmm. as to things that have happened in history that are happening again and again. And people write, write you know, was this really a political book? And he's like, nope, nope, this is a book of history. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> so. I mean, gosh, you must be so proud of him. And your your daughter, I know, is... An equestrian, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, j- I read about him, and he's quite—he's been very successful at this, and uh, you know, just he's a real natural writer. He's got quite an imagination, you know, science fiction, right? Yeah, science fiction, and I think the thing that makes me proud of him—you didn't ask, but I'll share—is yeah. <laughs> how many people comment about the strong women characters he writes. Oh, perfect! He is known for writing strong women characters, and I'm so proud of him for that. Oh, that you know, is didn't neat. have to be. Yeah, just who he is, and yeah. He well, he grew up with a mom who sh- who you know made an example. I my son said the same thing about me that he really could not be with a woman that wasn't didn't have a backbone. You know, that wasn't yeah. a strong woman, and that's right. that. Those are the sons we raised, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he had to put up with his sister, too. You know, she kept him in line. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my daughter kept my son in line too. She yeah, she was yeah, the older. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Imagine them debating. She turns out to be a lawyer who's an equestrian. Yeah. He turns out to be a science fiction writer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the backseat yeah. conversations were hysterical. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah, the jab. Yeah, we, we went She wanted it. things under control. He wanted to riff. You know, he wanted yeah. to go off in his imagination. So, yeah. very different kids. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're born different. Um, Colleen, it's been great. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining me on Leading She. It's just I've really enjoyed getting to know you, and uh, I just uh, am so impressed with everything you've accomplished. And congratulations. Well, Susan, you're my day apart uh, birthday yeah. uh, buddy. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> sisters from another, two different mothers, kind of thing. Right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. You handled a wonderful interview. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.